your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day it is for the U.S. economy and for the stock market. Isn't that a pleasure to hear? The stock market up, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up uh, 394 points. It has been up over 400. What is making the market pop in such a positive way? The Standard & Poor up, the NASDAQ up, everything up, up, and away. Happy days are here again. Well, maybe not happy days, but insane days, maybe. The uh, people that we have elected to lead us, the Democrats in the Senate and the Democrats in the White House and the Republicans in the House of Representatives have all come together and said, you know what, this uh, idea of a default, this idea of not raising the debt ceiling, it's just stupid beyond belief. There's a uh, terrific piece in Newsweek by Joe Silverstein that we will read about just how stupid it was. But it looks like we are not going to do a default. They are going to do a deal uh, before uh, the weekend. And uh, part of the uh, reason for this is that the president of the United States has changed his travel plans. He was going to Papua, New Guinea. But uh, no, he's not going there. He's staying home to try to save the U.S. economy from a major disaster, a, a really major disaster. And uh, the president actually has some comments on, uh, on this and what he is doing and what's going on with the uh, debt ceiling negotiations, where all of a sudden... He's changed his tone. And whoever helped uh, President Biden uh, change his tone and uh, protect the country that he's supposed to serve, uh, the uh, headline from the Washington Post, Biden will cut short an upcoming foreign trip, skipping planned stops in Papua New Guinea and Australia. Oh, no. Amid increasingly urgent talks between the White House and Congress over how to raise the government's debt limit and avoid a potentially catastrophic default. Uh, here is what the president uh, later on. But the uh, reality is that uh, what, what they're reporting in CNBC, which reports on the markets and the economy fairly effectively, Stocks rose Wednesday as investors hoped congressional leaders and President Joe Biden could come to a deal on the U.S. debt ceiling and avoid a catastrophic default. At the conclusion of a meeting between the president and congressional leaders, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that a better process is now in place for further talks, saying it's possible we'll get a deal done by the end of the week. Uh, that is uh, really something and would be uh, truly good and beneficial for the country. The one thing that is very different here is Biden had basically said up till now, uh, no negotiations. Uh, we need a, a, quote, clean lifting of the debt ceiling, meaning that we're not going to give the Republicans anything that they want toward uh, cutting back some of the 
excessive spending that has already taken place. He's no longer taking that position. He's very clear that he is recognizing just how important it is uh, that they, they actually get a deal done here. Uh, we'll have more on that as it develops. Uh, we also are going to be speaking about the religious landscape and how it is undergoing massive change, uh, actually more change than many people expected if you actually look at the numbers. And this could decide who wins the 2024 election. Uh, who's ahead because of this change in religious outlook? Is it the uh, the secularists, the people who are nuns who answer questions, and it's a very, very big increasing number. It's now over a fourth of Americans who say they are not a member of any religious group. Those people vote overwhelmingly Democratic. But there is another religious group that votes overwhelmingly Republican that is also growing in numbers and uh, helping to determine a different outcome in some of the crucial big states that will determine who the next president is, for instance. We will get to that uh, speaking about an analysis in Politico. We're also going to be speaking to Ambassador Bolton, John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to President Trump. He has had something to say about President Trump's promise and it's not just a statement, it's a promise that if he is elected president again, which he very much wants to be, he's campaigning everywhere, uh, if the president wants to be elected president again and does win election, he promises he will end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. Now, Ambassador Bolton was our ambassador to the UN. He was national security advisor for President Trump. How can you end this horrible war uh, where the Ukrainian side does seem to be gaining momentum again? And uh, how does that happen when uh, uh, so, so far has ended up with the, the deaths of tens of thousands of people on both sides? Uh, we will figure that out with Ambassador Bolton and the direction of uh, that particular battle. There's also a hearing in Federal's Appeals Court going on, which we will bring you up to date on, about whether to preserve access to a, an abortion pill, which is very popular. The majority of American abortions are performed, that's right, not surgically, but medically through this medication and mefephistrone. And uh, they are hearing right now arguments about whether this should r remain available to some of the consumers who use it. And uh, the Mifepristone was approved in 2000. And uh, it, it has then been removed uh, some restrictions that had been applied to that drug. Uh, have been removed more recently and then reattached because of a decision by U.S. District Judge uh, Matthew Kaczmarek of Texas. We will get to the status of that negotiation. And on one of the other social issues, there's a really surprising front-page article that I wasn't expecting to see in the New York Times.
And the headline of the article is GOP focuses on testimonies of trans regret. And what the piece by Maggie Astor says is when Missouri lawmakers took up bills to ban transition care for minors, uh, Chloe Cole, an activist from California, traveled to Jefferson City, that's the state capital, to offer her story as Exhibit A. After living as a transgender boy for years and getting a mastectomy at 15, in other words, having her breasts removed, Ms. Cole says she felt uh, stifled by a male identity and distraught by the changes that have been made to her body. She decided to detransition, returning to her female identity. She also decided to speak out. She has told her story in Florida and in Idaho, Kansas, New Hampshire, Ohio, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah. Republican lawmakers typically listen attentively, sometimes in tears. In March, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida relayed Ms. Cole's story in his State of the State address. So what do we learn from the example of trans people who have detransitioned? We will get to that and more coming up on The MedVet Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. show I'm sharing with you my surprise at a front page story and it's a well researched story they actually tried to reach a lot of the people involved that they're writing about and uh, for the New York Times to do a story with this kind of prominence that reflects I mean I think very badly on the trendy insistence on uh, trans rights for children. In other words, what we're talking about here is there are more than a dozen states so far, and there probably will be many more. There'll be more than 20, certainly, by the end of the day, that pass some kind of legislation that says that, okay, if you want uh, what is called gender-affirming care, if you want to go into a doctor and then take hormones that prevent you from reaching puberty as a male or puberty as a female, basically you don't reach the puberty at all because the hormones are going to stop it. Or if you get various parts of your body cut off or cut up or, or seriously mutilated, uh, you're not going to be allowed to make that decision as a child. And what they're talking about is this young woman, and she is a woman. Her name is Chloe Cole, who at age 15 decided that she wanted, quote, to transition and become a male. It didn't work out for her. It was horrible. And she has spoken about that and gotten standing ovations and moved people to tears because she was misled by the medical experts who were working with her 
to some extent her her parents were part of this mistake but uh she is one of about 10 prominent formerly trans people who have detransitioned and are now speaking around the country warning people don't do what i did don't do it and what's incredible here is they have a passage in this in this uh uh article in the new york times where many of the young people who are being spoken to by these activists who are opposed to transitioning at very young ages is that sometimes the very young people who end up having really very serious major expensive surgery and uh, taking these hormones don't recognize they're never going to have kids it's not going to happen let me share with you a little bit more of this. It says, as, as Republican-controlled state legislatures have passed over a dozen bills banning transition care for minors this year and have moved to restrict care for adults, Ms. Cole and fewer than 10 activists like her, people who transitioned and then changed course, have become the faces of the cause according to a review of news coverage and legislative testimony. Most people who transition, uh, they add in this article, uh, do not change course. And yet the influence of these activists has been striking. Well, the reason partially they don't change course is because it's such a big deal and there are certain things that you can't put back. Uh, seriously, if you're talking about the uh, the people who transition from male to female, um, the the idea of of reestablishing uh, your male identity is uh, it's it's not going to happen in terms of you being able to have children, uh, natural children. Of course, you can adopt, but uh, which is someone would say there are stories of regret and uh, irreversible physical transformation have tapped into strong emotions about rapidly shifting gender norms. Well, of course it's strong emotions. If you think for a moment about what you were doing to a child and often to people below the age of puberty, of course it produces strong emotions. We had a caller like this the other day, and uh, again, we'll welcome your calls, 1-800-955-1776. One of the things that they say in this article is it's very hard to know how many people who have transitioned actually come to regret it. But their estimate in the New York Times is it could be as low as 3%. Uh, so three out of a hundred people who get the transition surgery and hormone treatment and the rest of it, uh, or it could be as much as 14%. If it's 14%, that's a lot of regret for undertaking uh, this kind of, this kind of surgery. Uh, what it says, it says as more American trans, uh, teenagers, have identified as transgender, it's difficult to say how many will transition medically. Many transition transgender people do not 
transition medically? And precisely how many will later change course and regret it? A methodology, demographics, and even the definition of detransition vary widely from study to study, which typically show that between 2% and 13% of people detransition, and not always because of regret. Well, why else would you do it? Then they have this story, uh, well, it says leaders in the conservative movement say it is important to amplify the voices of people who feel they have been misled by doctors and want to warn others. And one of those people is uh, Elisa Rose Shoup, who was well known in the transgender rights movement, first as an outspoken transgender woman. In other words, used to be a man, she's now a transgender woman. And then as the first American to change her legal sex to non-binary. So when she published an essay in 2019 saying that her transition was a sham and that she wanted to live again as the man that I am, conservatives took immediate notice, of course. Before long, uh, Ms. Shoup, a 59-year-old Army veteran, was enmeshed in what she calls a spider web of activists uh, opposing transgender rights. But last year she reaffirmed her female identity. Remember she was born a man, then transitioned, then transitioned back, and returned to living as a woman. She renounced her work with conservative uh, groups and said this year she gave hundreds of her emails from her former allies to the Times and other news outlets. Religion, shifting in the United States, what is the political impact? Helps Republicans or Democrats? Somebody thinks to do a political analysis that changes your point of view, that can open your eyes to seeing things maybe a little bit differently than you saw them before. That's true for a, a wonderful piece that appeared in Politico magazine. Their um, magazine features an article by Ryan Burge, who's an associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. The headline is, The Religious Landscape is Undergoing Massive Change. It could decide the 2024 election. Now, some of this you may have heard before about how there's this huge, tremendous surge of uh, people who are identified as nuns, who don't have any religious affiliation, who aren't regular churchgoers, who don't even identify as a member of a faith. That's now a much bigger chunk of the population than it was before. That generally is thought to help Democrats. Uh, that's particularly true in some of those states in the upper Midwest that are going to be crucial to deciding the election. Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, th those are states where the 
increase of the nuns really seems to be moving things to the left. But there's another demographic change regarding religion that is moving counties and congressional districts and whole states to the right in a Republican direction. Uh, Professor Burge, uh, thank you for joining us. He is the author of several books, including one called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. Okay, first of all, those nuns, uh, how many of them are there, and where are they going? Well, there's a ton of them. In uh, 1972, it was only 5% of the population who were non-religious, and today it's about 30% of the population who are non-religious. Amongst Generation Z, which are people about 18 to 25 years old, it's 48% of them are nuns. But we're seeing the nuns grow in every demographic group, every racial group, every gender, every region. Well, most regions of America, we're seeing more nuns together. And they're literally changing the American landscape in every possible way, and I don't think it's being talked about enough. Well, you, you talk about, one of the places you talk about is a place I know well. I was born in Philadelphia. And uh, you mentioned Bucks County, which is uh, a yep. suburban county of Philadelphia, which has changed very dramatically in terms of religious outlook and uh, the partisan divide. What has moved people in such a decisive direction toward the Democratic Party in Bucks County? Yeah, so the share of Bucks County who were attached to a religious congregation dropped by 18 percentage points between wow. 2010 and 2020. And if you look at the at the voting, Obama won Bucks County barely by less than half a percent, but uh, Biden won it by 5% in 2020. I think what we're seeing is really the battlegrounds in America are suburban counties. They're more The rural areas are red and the urban areas are blue, but the, the suburban areas are purple. And I think religion is a huge predictor of whether those people go to the left or the right. And in suburban Philadelphia, many of those counties have become much less religious over the last 10 years. And I think that really builds up a blue wall for someone like Joe Biden running in 2024. Well, there's also, and this is what was surprising to me about your piece, and I think that a lot of conservatives need to confront it, is there are also counties, and some of them suburban, uh, some of them urban, where things have moved to the right, obviously. And they are very largely uh, concentrated in two states, in, in Texas and Florida. Florida didn't used to be such a decisively Democratic, uh, pardon me, Republican state where, uh, of course, Ron DeSantis won by a landslide. What's happening there, particularly involving immigration, that is actually pushing things to the right? Yeah, so Miami-Dade County is sort of the epicenter of all this and epitomizes this shift. The share of Miami-Dade County that's part of a religious tradition has gone up 11 points over the last 10 years. And if you look at that, that's largely the Hispanic population coming to America. Lots of them, you know, bring Catholicism with them and maintain that when they come to the United States. And I think a lot of those people are culturally conservative. So when the Democratic Party's talking about issues about, you know, making abortion illegal, you know, past 20 weeks or, or transgender issues, I think a lot of those Hispanics would lean blue on some economic issues, but on those social issues, they're feeling pushed out by that. And I think that's one of the reasons that Biden did so poor in Miami-Dade County in, in 2020 versus Hillary Clinton in 2016 because of how the Democratic Party has really shifted left on social issues. And the Republicans have highlighted that over and over again to drive that wedge in the, Hispanic, the, the religious Hispanic vote. Yeah, which is which is interesting because you hear a lot in conservative circles about the invasion 
of various immigrant groups, and they all are going to make it impossible for Republicans to win elections. What we've seen in recent elections is some of the immigrants to this country uh, who are more religious, uh, by and large, uh, more committed particularly to Catholic faith uh, than some of the people who are native-born, that they actually have um, um, moved things in a Republican, more conservative direction. Uh, were you surprised to discover that? Well, I think it's one of those things where you got to try to explain, you know, why is Florida now a solid red place? And why has Texas not moved more towards the purplish or even bluish side over the last 10 years? And we're seeing the, 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 the lines always been the Hispanics typically are, are left of center. But I think that, that that changes when you think about what kind of Hispanic. If you look at those border counties in the Rio Grande Valley, like Star and Maverick County, a lot of them religion doubled in those counties between 2010 and 2020. And Biden did 40 points less than Hillary Clinton did four years earlier. you got to explain that some way. And I think a lot of those places are seeing a lot more immigrants who are a lot more religious. And it changes the overall tone and culture. And it kind of gives permission for a lot of those Hispanics. And I think even people who lived there before to vote for Republicans when they didn't before. Do you think that the growth of the nuns, the disaffiliation uh, with religion, uh, there's uh, another piece at Axios uh, that says rising number of Americans are switching religions. And uh, they find that a quarter of Americans, 24 percent, say they've changed religious traditions or denominations over their life lifetime or recently. Is that trend going to continue in terms of uh, uh, more and more people who are unaffiliated? Yeah. So when it comes to religious switching, what we we used to assume that religion was the first way we thought about the world. It was the way we thought about politics through a religious lens. So when we figure out who we're going to vote for, we use the Bible or the Torah or the Quran to figure that out. But now political science has really changed the way we think about this. And now we think that politics is the first lens and everything else is downstream of our partisanship. So what kind of church do we go to? Well, we go to a church that reinforces our political beliefs. But let's say that I'm liberal, I'm left of center, and I grew up in an evangelical church. I'm not going to go to a church that tells, talks about things that I don't like every Sunday. So more than likely, what I'm going to do is head for the exit and never come back. Well, I think that other people have been drawn to evangelicalism because of that cultural conservatism on abortion and same-sex marriage and transgender and things like that. So we're seeing religion being sorted out by partisanship, which I think creates these echo chambers uh, on the left and the right, all the nuns tend, or most of the nuns tend to be leftists, and most people in church, especially white people, tend to be on the right. And I think that's kind of caustic for America going forward. We need to build bridges with each other. Well, clearly we do. It's also, is it healthy for religion? Because there are a certain number of people, though it's not a majority of people who leave churches, leave it because of politics, but there are some people who say, I'm getting out of this church because there's too much emphasis on politics, right? I think that's, I think some churches have become defined by their political positions, but I'm reminded of Michael Jordan when he was asked uh, why he didn't get more involved in politics. He said, because Republicans buy sneakers, too. You know, getting involved in politics <laughs> turns off part of your potential audience. And I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor myself, and I think the gospel is for everybody, left, right, and center. And I don't want to exclude someone for, for talking about something from the pulpit. So I want to have a more open message and say Democrats are welcome here and Republicans are welcome here as well. Uh, can you hang on uh, for uh, for a uh, few minutes more? Uh, because I want to talk about 
A people who want to build religious faith, uh, what's the way to do it, taking uh, cognizance of all these factors we're talking about? We'll be right back with Ryan Burge. spiritual journey. This is the Michael Medved Show. And we're on a spiritual journey right now with Professor Ryan Burge, who is an associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. He's also research director for the organization Faith Counts. He is the author of several books, including The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. And he has a uh, terrific piece that just appeared in Politico magazine. And Ryan also, I happen to know, uh, was on NPR, National Public Radio, today and said in part, every year the pews are getting emptier and the collection plates getting lighter. We're going to see thousands of churches closing in America over the next 20 to 30 years in every part of the country, in every region, in every state, urban suburban and rural okay Ryan um, you say you're a pastor also uh, what's the the best strategy for at least slowing this process and, and maybe rebuilding uh, some of these collapsing congregations yeah, the one thing I tell pastors is uh, they're trained to think about the world vertically. Like everything is a, a faith problem, a God problem, because that's they went to divinity school and everything there is theological, which I understand. I'm a social scientist first, so I think every problem is horizontal. It's, it's us and other people. And I think that churches need to focus just a little bit more of their time and attention on understanding that a lot of people go to church for horizontal reasons, not just vertical reasons. They want to see their friends. They want to, their kids to play with other kids. They don't want to get out of the house for a while. And I think churches are ideally situated in most communities in America. They have gyms. They have big outdoor spaces. They have big fellowship halls. Why don't they have a cookout, a barbecue, a picnic, a, a carnival, uh, just an excuse to get people together in a, in a no-judgment, you know, worry-free environment? Don't have any agenda. Don't try to win anybody over. Just say, come and hang out and make connections with people. And I think people will realize, wow, like church is just people hanging out. Now, there's a God piece and a Jesus piece, obviously, but I really like these people, and I want to be around them more. And I think that it would bring a lot more people in or at least keep people in the pews as opposed to just going to church and going straight home. We need to think more about that social piece as well. But there are people who might be critical of what you just said and, and uh, talk about the Great Commission that is a part of the charge in the New Testament for Christians uh, to go out and teach the gospel, spread the gospel, spread the word. Uh, do, you, do you think that the heavy emphasis on politics that is particularly the case in, uh, in a, a lot of what are, what are called evangelical congregations, that that is uh, contributing to... Uh, some of the decline of religious identification? Yeah, I'll give you a statistic right now. Amongst white people who identify as very liberal, 60% of them describe their church attendance as never. Um, that's up from 40% 15 years ago. So what we're seeing is, you know, especially among white people, 
who are left of center, they don't think religion has anything for them. And, and partly that's because the only religion that many parts of the country have is evangelical Christianity. You know, there used to be this great tradition in America called the Mainline, which was Episcopalians, United Church of Christ, United Methodists, and they were sort of middle of the road on these issues. I mean, they preached the gospel, but they also said that we should go out and serve the kingdom and, and, and serve the, the needy and, and clothe the naked and, and feed the hungry. And, you know, a lot of those Methodists are once-a-month kind of people, but they liked what the church did in terms of social service. Those churches are really dying off in rapid numbers now. And so for a lot of parts of the country, you only have two options. It's evangelical or none. And I think for a lot of people, they go, well, I can't do the evangelical thing, so I guess I'm a nun. What about the the influence on family structure, uh, marriage, divorce, uh, marital stability? There are a lot of people who would think that one of the reasons that uh, we have such a, a tremendous problem in America, and we do, you can't look at the numbers without without acknowledging it, uh, of people who get married and then the marriage is break up. Uh, a lot of times people think that's because of a uh, alienation from religion or a lack of religion or a lack of religious communities to support the marriage. But could it also be that one of the reasons those congregations are struggling is uh, because uh, of the, the, the marriages being less stable and, and less solid? Yeah, so what I, I say about this is it's a very narrow path to religion now. And if you make any mistake along the way and you fall off the path, your chances of being a part of a religious community go way down. What do I mean by mistakes? I mean things like um, uh, getting divorced or having a child out of wedlock or living together um, before you get married or, let's say, um, dropping out of college. Anything that, that kind of deviates from the quote-unquote ideal path of you know, graduate high school, go to college, marry someone, have kids, have a good job. Those are the kind of people that are still in church. Actually, if you look at the data, the, the, the people who are in church the most today are people with a four-year college degree making between $60,000 and $100,000 a year. So college-educated, middle-class or upper-middle-class folks are the ones going to church. It's the people at the low end of the education spectrum and the income spectrum that are falling away, and a lot of those people are divorced or single parents or, you know, living with their partner who are they're not married to. So I think for whatever – and religion, I think, sometimes d doesn't meaningfully do this. They don't try to push people away, but I think people have gotten the memo that to be religious means you did everything right, and if you do anything wrong, you don't belong there. And uh, in terms of why it is that uh, the, the people – who do identify as religious are so disproportionately Republican and conservative. It's not just the issue of abortion. Uh, it's not the issue of gay marriage anymore, because that appears to be accepted by a majority of everybody, including a majority of Republicans. What's the, the core element uh, that uh, draws people with religious commitment to a more conservative point of view? You know, that's, that's a great question. I mean, there used to be in this country a fairly robust uh, religious left. I mean, even a guy like John F. Kennedy, right, was a Democrat, but also a Catholic, and 67% and of white Catholics in his day were Democrats. I think what's happened is that the parties have decided that religion's a really good wedge. 
And uh, we, you know, if you look back at abortion data back in the 1970s, Republicans and Democrats basically had very similar views on abortion back in the 70s and even into the early 80s. But I think both parties realized they could maybe get an advantage in the electorate by driving a wedge on abortion. And I think that made people feel like they have to sort themselves out. We don't like to live lives of incongruence. So if I'm an evangelical, it's easier to be a Republican. I'm an atheist, it's easier to be a Democrat or a liberal. People don't like living lives where they have to try to make sense of things that don't make sense. So they line up. They try to line up their entire identity behind their partisanship. That's become the grand sorting mechanism. And I think it's made us more tribal, more uh, distrustful, more angry, and uh, uncivil. And that's what we're seeing in America today. Do you pastor a church as well as teaching at Eastern Illinois University? I do. I'm the, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church of Mount Vernon, Illinois. I've been there for 16 years, the longest-serving pastor in the church's history. Wow. Uh, and is that uh, SBC? Is that the Southern Baptist Convention Church? No, we're, uh, we're part of the main line, the American Baptist Church, uh, which is declining rapidly. When I took over the church in 2006, we had about 50 people on an average Sunday, and today uh, we'd be lucky to have 12. Um, so we're, we're planning our closure at some point in the, in the, in the near term. What what's the S, <laughs> dropping down to twelve people in church every Sunday? That's got to be sort of soul killing. Uh, what's what's the essence of the problem? Uh, a lot of it was um, the, a lot of people in my church now are in their seventies, eighties, and nineties, and their children grew up in that ch- in, in that church, and they're not there anymore. We sort of lost that middle, and that's how you how a church sustains itself. One generation hands it off to the next, hands it off to the next. And not a single person in my church, their children, still go to my church. Now, some of them moved to a different community, but a lot of them just left religion entirely, and there was no one really to carry the baton along. And so now we've got 70, 80, 90-year-olds, and really how we went from 50 to 12 is it's the funeral home more than anything else. Very few people left on their own volition. They just died and weren't replaced by anybody else. Yeah, they're, they're now attending services at a, a even larger congregation. Uh, Ryan Burgey, we'll put information about your work with Faith Counts, your work at uh, Eastern Illinois University, and uh, your very perceptive and uh, provocative article in Politico magazine at michaelmedved.com. Coming up on the Medved Show, we'll be talking about the, the deal on the debt ceiling, which is a very good thing. And remember secession? Well, you should. It was about the Civil War. We're having another secession movement that is gaining real strength involving uh, 15 counties in the Northwest. We will get to that. And-